am Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs for Myriad Oncology. Welcome to Inside the Genome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Karen Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a licensed clinical psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic in the Center for Adult Behavioral Health. Dr. Hurley has given numerous presentations on the psychosocial challenges faced by patients deciding to undergo genetic testing. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hurley. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, we've, we've known each other for some time, so it's nice to get to chat with friends. I hope that the audience by the end really has a good understanding of what you do. You know, I always think of you a little in, as unorthodox in your training and kind of what you do. You're really carving out your own subfield of uh, genetic testing, which is fantastic. But if you could give a little bit of uh, how you got to where you're at in your life, I think it would be very helpful. And, uh, and then maybe a little bit about what your average day looks like and week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so, so much for asking because I, I like telling this story in part to uh, help other people who are you know, in some kind of uh, professional track about how does your focus evolve? Mm -hmm. So mine actually started in the fourth grade when wow. I would be with my, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would be with my uh, classmates and we'd be playing Peanuts characters. And I was Lucy, the doctor is in, five cents, please. Right. So it looked pretty early on, like I was destined for a career in psychology. I did major in psychology in uh, undergrad. Uh, but then when it came time to apply for graduate school, I realized that I had a child's view of what psychologists do, but I didn't know what that was going to mean as a grown-up. Yeah, right? yeah. So I floundered around a little bit. I thought about medical school. I thought about acupuncture. I thought about naturopathy. I thought about divinity school. I mean, oh, wow. I was, yeah, the whole I was really all over the place. Yeah. And then what caught my attention was in the mid to late 80s is when behavioral medicine and health psychology was just starting to take off. And I felt like that combined two interests of mine, you know, the, the yeah. interest in medicine, but at the same time, realizing that the path through medical school was not for me, but rather what did this mean for patients as they were being presented with, you know, very difficult situations. Yeah. So uh, I started my clinical psychology program. I had an advisor who was working with a gynecologist and our first project was on uh, women who got uh, abnormal pap smears and whether or not they would come back for their colposcopy. Interesting. Right? And uh, yeah, and then we moved on to a project on emotional distress in patients who were undergoing infertility treatment. And then my advisor hooked up with Mary Daly at Fox oh, Chase. Okay. So this is now the mid 1990s. And so there I am as a research assistant sitting at this big table, listening to all of these uh, researchers at different levels, talking about genetic testing. At that time, they were recruiting women who had very 
prominent pedigrees where these families were devastated by cancer, you know, multiple incidences of illness and death, right? But then they had this other cohort of women who didn't qualify for those gene discovery trials, but uh, who still were being followed because of their cancer history. And what I noticed was that the women who had a history of having a first degree relative, a mother or a sister who'd gone through ovarian cancer and most likely had lost someone to ovarian cancer because at that time, and even now, the screening is not effective in detecting yeah. cancer early. And they were being advised without the testing yet be av being available to them to undergo risk-reducing oophorectomy, which at yeah, that well. time we were calling prophylactic oophorectomy. Yeah, so and this I'm was when maybe the late 80s then probably? No, like this was 90s? about 95, 96, okay. yeah. right? And I was sitting there thinking, how in the world do you make a decision like that? You know, I was thinking about the emotional intensity, and I was also thinking about all of these women mm -hmm. who were on, you know, basically on the edge of science. There was no data, yeah. you know, there was no guidance. There was a lot of concern about what their futures were going to be like. And so without the benefit of testing, they were being asked to decide, you know, do mm -hmm. you want surgery or not? So that became my dissertation. Oh, wow. And I interviewed uh, probably 100 women, many of them personally, I never met them. I was talking with them on the phone, you know, and, and then it became my life. Yeah. So it was very much, uh, you know, uh, a process of following my nose in terms of my interest, mm -hmm. um, and being in the right place at the right time, and just feeling that sense of rightness, oh, this is my place. I can do something about this. Yeah, no, very yeah. interesting. So tell me about your first job then. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting out of that training mm -hmm. period. So how did you, mm -hmm. you know, say, this is what I want to do. And this is the kind of practice I want to run. Mm -hmm. and, and then how has that transformed over the years to what you have today? There have been a few shifts. So I started in an all research postdoc at Mount Sinai. I was working with uh, Bill Red, who was one of the early pioneers in uh, psycho-oncology and behavioral research in cancer. Uh, and, you know, that was great. Then after three or four years, you know, we were doing things like looking at adherence to recommendations for colon cancer screening. I started to get a little bit of an itch to do some clinical work again. So I got a position at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It was part research, part clinical. I was doing uh, psychosocial research in hereditary cancer. For the first time, I was in the room with women who were making these decisions. Yeah. And what I really noticed is that there was a heaviness to the decisions that at first I couldn't explain. We had these psychosocial models that talked about pros and cons, that talked about making a balanced intellectual decision between things like perceived risk, perceived efficacy of the treatment, but there was something missing. 
And then as I was reaching back into my clinical training, I finally realized that what was missing was awareness of mortality. We were talking about cancer, Mm -hmm. you know, especially back then, but even now, you know, talking about cancer, once that word is on the table, mortality is lurking somewhere, even with all of the treatments that we have available. And even though we were developing this technology to help women avoid disease and mortality that had devastated their families. Yeah. Right. But it was still in the shadows, in the room, I had to learn a way to kind of touch on it, but not make it overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. it it was a delicate balance. And I had no guidance, no textbooks. It was pretty much all feeling, except for thinking about the existential realities that we all face and realizing that genetic testing kind of pushes those to the fore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all have to make decisions without knowing the future. We're all mortal without exception, good genes, mutated genes. But at the same time, I saw that these women were somehow feeling like they had been separated out from the flow of humanity. So part of my job was to bring them back into the flow and saying, technology is putting choices in front of you that we haven't faced before. But in some ways, the questions that you're facing about, you know, the role of fairness, why does one person get sick and another not? Mm -hmm. Those questions are thousands of years old. Yeah. Yeah. And even though, I mean, you still had now some testing data that you could show people and say, you are, you are not carrying such a gene and, you know, here's some Mm -hmm. general risk. I mean, we're still trying to figure out risk, you know, and, and risk That's, by ancestry and everything else. So, yeah. and back then you didn't have the luxury of, you know, I would think support groups would have been in their infancy, you know, just a lot of mm-hmm. things, patient level material, otherwise that's out there. I mean, you know, really, really didn't mm-hmm. have the, the web and all, all the things, the goodness and bad things that sometimes that can bring. That's true. And, and things at times were moving really fast because mm-hmm. we went from testing for the original uh, three Ashkenazi Jewish mutations that were prevalent to, you know, then there was the expansion to, uh, you know, I remember when we started doing wide rearrangements, right? Mm -hmm. And then the move to multi-gene panels, right? And so every step along the way, there's been an adjustment in how does this affect people? So sometimes you get people coming from families that have been devastated by cancer, and sometimes this comes completely out of the blue. And then now with panel testing, you get women who go in for a family history of one thing, but then they test positive for something that they weren't expecting, Mm -hmm. right? So in each iteration of advances in testing, there was a corresponding change that I had to make in being able to support and counsel people who are going through this. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you function now in the clinic? Are you um, mainly mm-hmm. seeing people after they had genetic testing or part of the process? Are you doing the genetic testing? Yeah. So, so mostly it's people who are in the genetic testing process. It's interesting. I started out counseling women who were going through uh, BRCA one and two testing 
expanding to mm -hmm. Lynch. And now my practice is basically all comers yeah. in terms of cancer risk. You know, I have patients with Lynch, with FAP, with VHL. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had patients with Lee Fraumini. Uh, it's pretty much anything that involves that constellation of high threat, big decisions to make, yeah. processing complex information and impact not only to the individual, but other members of the family. Yeah. So most of the time, these folks would have had testing, you know, now are, are seeing you. Uh, mm -hmm. And are, are you following them long term? I mean, what, what is a general uh, kind of uh -huh. session and cadence look like with you? You know, it, it, it kind of depends, you know, for some people, they've been doing pretty well psychologically, they have really good support systems, good coping skills, then the genetic information comes along, it's hard to take in, it's hard to handle, yeah. but they get their feet under them relatively quickly. So I might see them once or twice. If someone is trying to decide about surgery, we do that. Mm -hmm. If they have an upcoming surgery, we might focus a little bit on preparation for surgery, yeah. you know. And how, so, how does it even, how do those people even get to your doorstep? Is there some screening process or people are referring a certain uh, it's, type it's, of patient? It's, it's, it's mostly internal referrals. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, I'll get an external referral. Uh, when I made the move from New York to Cleveland, I still have a couple of New York patients who oh, wow. yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I still have my New York license. Mm -hmm. But then there are some people for whom the genetic testing lands on them differently due to a, a life history that might include other traumas or stress. You know, maybe they've had another chronic uh, illness condition and mm. their lives have already been disrupted by illness and then they get this information or people who've been through child abuse, verbal abuse, grown up with a parent with uh, a substance abuse disorder, things yeah. like that. And so these things are not separate from dealing with the threat and the uncertainty that goes along with being at risk for cancer. Yeah. So when you, when you first meet with uh, like a new referral, do you do kind of a, an overall intake of, of all this mm -hmm. to get to all these other, you know, potential issues in the background? That's right. And I think because so many people have shared their stories with me, it's almost like knowing kind of, does it hurt here? Does it hurt there? Does it mm -hmm. hurt there? knowing where those sensitive spots are likely to be so that we can pretty quickly see what are the vulnerabilities, but also what are the strengths? What are, what's the resilience? What can we put in the plus column and bringing that to the fore? Again, with mm -hmm. the, the goal of reassuring someone that they might feel confused or upset by the information, but that they will get their feet under them, that most people are resilient uh, and will on their own come around in an objectively short period of time, even though it might feel like a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how, I mean, what are some of the, uh, the skills that you try to give people to help them cope through this mm -hmm. whole, whole thing? 
Mm -hmm. So one of the most important ones is to identify uh, their best social supports and to use them. So mm. sometimes, you know, I'll see people who are the rock of the family or they uh, don't want to worry other people. So yeah. they don't necessarily talk about what's going on, even though they have a lot of people available to them. So, so that's where uh, support networks are so important. I've been involved with force for a long time, for mm -hmm. example, and uh, being able to steer people towards places where they can get reliable information and also to just see other people who are maybe a little further along down the path and say, okay, if you can do that, I can do this. Yeah, FORCE, uh, for those that don't know, um, that's a advocacy group really focused on hereditary cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. It was started out with BRCA1 and 2 and, you know, it's now transitioned to more all things hereditary. How have you seen your field grow? I mean, you're really starting out from the beginning of it and you're getting to really shape it to some extent. Uh, are you seeing more people uh, around the country starting to do what you're doing and offer these types of services? I think I'm starting to see more people, although um, it's hard to maintain it as a micro specialty because there's so much happening in the field. There's so many mm -hmm. developments in testing and risk information. For example, every conference I've gone to in the last two years has featured sessions about polygenic risk scores. Yeah. Right. What are people doing with that? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Especially again, it's like, you know, absent guidelines. I mean, it's kind of a similar world right now, you know, where <laughs> we know this is important <laughs> and it's right. part of your genetics uh, and it was inherited, but it's in some ways, you know, even almost more complex than, you know, just BRCA1 and 2. Mm -hmm. That's right. So people are constantly coming in with complex genetic and medical questions about uh, pre-implantation genetic testing and alternative forms of uh, fertility. For example, I've had a few patients who were BRCA mutation carriers who chose to use an egg donor right, mm -hmm. to avoid passing on their mutation, right? Yeah. That's again, very difficult, very complex decision. And that if you go to a therapist who's never heard of this, you know, the patient will usually spend most of the session yeah. educating the therapist. So that was one of the major reasons that I really decided to develop this focus so that people could come in and we could focus on what the information meant for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so are you seeing more centers have uh, someone doing what you're doing? I'm seeing them here and there. It's spotty. Right. Mm -hmm. It kind of depends on part, maybe a, a major cancer center will have uh, enough staff that they could afford someone to specialize, things like that. But I think it's, it's, it's still a little bit of happenstance, you know, if somebody lands with the right yeah. training. Right. And a match it, with their passion. I mean, clearly you were always right. very interested mm -hmm. in this. And even when you're describing your training, I mean, you can see kind of a path to women's cancers and, and uh, interests. Yeah. And you know, what I was thinking about was that if I were starting out, 
now, if we could, you know, sort of dial the clock back, I would, uh, I would be interested in dual training as a genetic counselor and psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like psychology and genetic counseling, you know, we're natural allies. We have lots of over, uh, overlapping interests Yeah. and genetic counselors are not going to necessarily do psychotherapy in their sessions, but to the extent that they're sensitive to psychosocial issues can make them more effective. And likewise, for psychologists, being aware of the complexity of the demands on patients in these situations, I think that there's more that can be done for joint training. Um, I've been spending a lot more time in the last few years doing workshops for genetic counselors and spending Mm -hmm. uh, time uh, connecting with the National Society for Genetic Counselors, NSGC. It's a fabulous organization. So doing some training here and there with them to promote this idea that we need to work together and combine our mutual strengths to support patients. Yeah. And it is a nice, um, you know, component of their training. And, you know, I would imagine you would just bring such a richness then that you could add into what they're already learning and, um, you know, their, their passion for genetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, you know, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, do you have one success story that really stands out to you in a HIPAA compliant fashion? <laughs> that you can, wow. Uh, Think of where really something out of the box that uh, you can say, I definitely made a big difference in that person's life. So that just gave my brain a traffic jam (laughs) (laughs) because so many different stories, you know, flooded into my head at once. So the one that floats to the top was an FAP patient. Okay. And uh, she had had her initial colectomy, her subtotal colectomy you know, a number of years ago, uh, mm-hmm. but she did need a revision. Uh, yeah. So she was coming in and she was very distressed about the possibility of having to have an ileostomy bag for a few yeah. months, you know, before her surgery and her revision could be completed. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll real quick for the audience, FAP is a familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome. It's uh-huh. where you make thousands Uh of polyps uh, throughout your colon and intestines. Right. And, you know, and as a psychologist, I had to learn to let those kinds of terms, you know, familial adenomatous polyposis flow off my tongue, you know, like didn't occur, you know, wasn't there in my psychology books. Yeah. Uh, She was so distressed about the prospect of this surgery that she said, I'm just going to stay alone in my room for three months until this is all done. Hmm. And I thought, wow, okay, <laughs> what am I gonna yeah. do about this? But there was something about her presentation. It was a little dramatic, right? So I took a slight risk and, and I, was, I had this picture of her in her bedroom and that there would be like a little you know, cat door at the bottom of the, you know, the door to slide her meals in. And, you know, I shared that image with her. And then we started talking about how you never really know until you're in this situation, what it's going to be like. Mm -hmm. I started talking about how most people are resilient, 
but it's not necessarily pretty or easy or inspirational. You know, it's a slog, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel good until you hit that moment where it kind of comes together in your head and you say, uh, okay, I guess I can do this, right? And, you know, and she told me that, you know, a bunch of friends had been sending her links to sites that had, you know, sassy colostomy lingerie. Mm. And she was just, you know, and you, you had to, you had to picture her. She was very well put together. You know, she had hair, she had a beautiful mm. manicure, you know, the whole thing, you know, but it, that was not persuading her. But when I, when I talked about, I can't tell you when or how this is going to happen, but you are going to figure out. And she says, oh, it's going to have to come from me. Right. And I say, yeah. So three days later, I go to her hospital room, actually, post-surgery, and she's there in the wheelchair, but she's got balloons. She had a brand new manicure. There's people everywhere where she had just said, I, I don't want to see anybody until this is all done, but it was like a party. Yeah. And her husband was in the background nodding and saying, thank you. Oh, <laughs> you know? that's great. Yeah. You know, she had figured it out. Yeah. You know, she didn't have to hide herself away. It was going to be all right. And, you know, who wants a bag? Nobody. You know, she was going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, you clearly have helped a lot of people and bring so much wisdom to this whole field and a field that you're really helping to create. So uh, hats off to you. And thank you so much for coming on uh, to the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here to see you again. And, you know, I hope that this, uh, I hope this talk sparks things in people to yeah. just attend to that human side of the technology that we're creating as we go. Yes, absolutely.